Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all of the past episodes of the podcast. On with the show. Hey everybody, this is Jack. Really quickly before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to note that this is part two of our three-part series on poetry and 9-11 and poetry in the aftermath of 9-11. In our first episode, we really focused on the day itself and poetry that was processing trauma. And in this one, we move a little bit farther along to looking at how poetry engaged with parts of the 9-11 story that were left out and the role that poetry played during the uh, rush to war and in the wars that came after 9-11 with a particular focus on international voices and voices from outside the United States. We are also breaking our usual read the poem, talk about the poem, read the poem again format, and we're kind of bringing a lot of different poems to one subject in these episodes. Hope you like it. The way that the Iraq war and the war in Afghanistan have are talked about now, it's like generally accepted as two total catastrophes and terrible ideas, um, which, I mean, is the case. Um, And in some ways, I think, has actually opened the door for somewhat of a reckoning of, like, the rise in Islamophobia and all that stuff, which is just like, oh, if, you know, the, the war was a disaster, then probably the rationales to justify things were a disaster, and then maybe we shouldn't have been so Islamophobic. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's it's still hard, and part of this is is the distance that we have from other countries, and in, in some ways, like, any country has from another country that's far away but but also like the way our military has become so um like without the draft it's it's become very isolated in some ways i think from other parts of the population but that the true toll on iraq and afghanistan and other parts of like the middle east and west asia and south asia um, has just been horrific. Um, and you, you know, you said 37 million displaced. I think the war in Iraq itself has a casualty toll of the hundreds of thousands, um, of Iraqis, um, which is just exponentially higher than the 
um, toll of U.S. troops, which is also very high. And then, of course, the fact that met many or most of those people in Iraq are were not soldiers, uh, but were civilians. Um, and even as we say, it was kind of like, sometimes I feel like it's talked about a little bit as a whoopsie or something. And it's like, there's, there's a, I think because, I guess like, because the U.S. struggles to understand its role in the world as maybe not always the best, and having a long history of using violence uh, on other people for its own power and security and economic gain, that even, even when something as, as obviously disastrous as these two wars, there's still not an ability, I think, to reckon with like, um, what that has meant for other people. I think that's so right. I feel like the wars get wrapped up in this conversation of like a fated response. Like when you try and, and engage, at least this has happened to me on a few occasions, when you try to engage with people who were pro-war at the time, their response now is like, oh, they were obviously a mistake. But like we were all kind of in a weird place back then, which is like, a complete abdication of responsibility on one level for like the fact that you were willing, like I, there were plenty of people who weren't in that place. There were global protests on a massive scale to us war in Iraq. There were a lot of people literally screaming, stop, don't do this. It's not right. Um, so to just try and play it off as like, well, you know, it was, it was a different time. It was, you know, we couldn't possibly have known. It's like, no, it was pretty easy to know. Like, yeah. Uh or if not easy it was at least like not hidden the the opposition was very present and yeah. the counter arguments were present. Um but in the authorization of powers for George W Bush the increased executive powers related to war making you see the intense pressure that elected officials were feeling in the wake of 9/11 to to you know at the very least, look and act tough, um, which is highly unfortunate. But in terms of removing complexity from narratives around 9-11, something else that happens pretty early on is that the sort of imagistic representation of the day becomes uh, very particularized, especially for an American audience. And so the image of firefighters raising the flag which is already a visual echo of Marines raising the flag on Iwo Jima becomes the most circulated image of the event when in the early days after 9-11, the really iconic image was known as the falling man, which was a person uh, who had jumped out of the towers as many, many, many people did on the day of the 9-11. And again, on one level, there's a very human personal reason for those images not to be widely circulated. It is such an intense and existentially dreadful type of pain and fear that you are sort of confronted with when you look at those images. But the fact that people who jumped on 9-11 are not a bigger part of the popular 9-11 story 
is another level on which the focus was moved pretty early on to who are the heroes of the day. And most of them are NYPD, NYFD, and at the time, and especially then, more, much more so than now, particularly in the NYPD, um, mostly white, mostly men, and almost entirely men, in the entire New York City Fire Department of like, I forget how many thousands of people, I think there were like 11 women on 9-11. But this interest in image curation, in narrative curation, whether conscious or unconscious, ends up creating a very particular view of the event that in some ways downplays some of the greatest pain. Um, but there is this poem by Christine Hartzler, The Diver, which came out in 2003, which is a really powerful uh, sort of grappling with with the people who, who jumped in. It's called The Diver. I saw Greg Louganis dive in St. Louis in 1984. Oh, the way he folded and unfolded in the air. We all gasped when he split the surface and disappeared. But he rose up in a shimmering swath of bubbles, unbounded joy. Seventeen years later, a man steps out through the lattice of a skyscraper and folds himself into a breathtaking pike, an anonymous diver abandoning his day job. Maybe you've seen the photograph, a single body falling, white Oxford full and fluttering, like a peony, blousy on that singular day. Wow. And that's that's directly about the falling man image, if, if you've seen it, that is referencing it specifically. Um, and that image hasn't totally vanished from cultural consciousness. The um, ad campaign for, I believe, the fifth season of Mad Men was accused of looking too much like the, the falling man image. Uh, and and that, that is sort of the, the one image of people who jumped. But by and large, that's not a huge part of the retold story of 9-11 in the way that that many other stories are retold. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. Um, it's, yeah, it's, I guess, like, kind of jumping off that, you know, we, we found a few different kind of like responses to both the, the falling man image and just the event itself. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just, um, I think there there was in the immediate aftermath so much complexity in how people were responding to it. And I think, you know, maybe we didn't have uh, the capacity to hold that now, um, but maybe we can hold a little bit. <laughs> of it. Um, there was a poem I found uh, by the poet um, Samuel Hazo, um, who is the son of Lebanese and Syrian immigrants. And this is just an excerpt, but um, he wrote a poem September 11th, 2001. The, the sort of the end of the poem goes, of all the thousands there, we saw those few, just those free falling through the sky like flotsam from a blaze. Nightmares of impact crushed us. We slept like the doomed or drowned. Then 
woke to oratory, vigils, valor, journalists declaring war, and snapping from aerials or poles, the furious clamor of flags. Um, which actually interestingly captures sort of both those those two Im the the transition to those from the first image to the second image where this the speaker sees people jumping from the um from the the towers and the nightmares of impact crushed us um and then woke to oratory and journalists declaring war and then the furious clamor of flags so like you know the next figurative day you have the um you know the image of the the firemen raising the flag and that kind of like hyper patriotism um and another another poem that i think was fairly i mean i wasn't aware of it at the time because i was young but i but it, from what i've read about it um i think it was fairly widely circulated um, but it was by the poet, uh, Suhair Hamad, um, who, um, yeah, is, is, uh, Palestinian, um, was born in, in a Palestinian refugee camp in Jordan and then moved to Brooklyn when she was a young child, um, and wrote this poem, First Writing Sense, um, which is a long poem, but this, this part has been... I think I've seen it excerpt, excerpted a few places. Um, first, please God, let it be a mistake. The pilot's heart failed, the plane's engine died. Then please God, let it be a nightmare, wake me now. Please God, after the second plane, please, don't let it be anyone who looks like my brothers. Um, which I think, yeah, I mean, sort of speaks for itself, but, you know, I, I think like it's something that kind of like mainstream white America has taken time to realize that like, you know, Islamophobia and like the racialization of uh, Muslims and just like the kind of racism against people from the Middle East or South Asia. Um, like kind of got more intense after 9-11 but i think for for people sort of of those identities the the um awareness that this kind of event would do that in america was immediate you know which this kind of like poem speaks to which is like oh please just like let it be not <laughs> someone who looks, you know, like me, um, because I know what will happen as a result. Um, and I think that's another instance where historical context comes into play, because most of the terrorist acts leading up to 9-11 itself that had taken place during the 90s were domestic terrorism. The Oklahoma City bombing, the various government standoffs at Ruby Ridge or in Waco, like these were not... Uh, you know, the, the sort of fear of the other existed in American culture and was reproduced constantly, but the real threats had been coming from uh, white nationalist neo-Nazi groups. 
And so that moment of seeing a major terrorist attack and thinking, obviously it could be somebody who looks like me, but I hope and pray it isn't. Like you, you see that tension grows under the weight of history as well. Yeah, just a different kind of assessment of the danger and the trauma and the fear that came after 9-11 because, uh, and again, this isn't like a clean break between white writers and BIPOC writers, but many, many, many writers of color after 9-11 were identifying different kinds of threats and different kinds of fears and a different uh, just view on what was happening and where the country could go. There are very few white writers who actually write really perceptively about 9-11. They write perceptively about the emotions of 9-11, but not necessarily the context of 9-11. And where you find a lot of that in poetry, as well as in like more general commentary, is from writers of color. And I, I think you, you see that here. And you also see, you know, equal amounts horror at the act itself, you know, like the, the, this, this little excerpt of the poem is like, please God, let this be a mistake or be a nightmare and not be real. Um, but it's just that there's a complexity to it that it's like, this is a horrible, unspeakable act. And also like it has, will have enormous consequences on myself and, you know, my communities. Um, Absolutely. There's sometimes an unfair pressure put on those writers as well to sort of declare that they didn't stand by the acts of 9-11 when it's like obviously not. Um, Absolutely. Well, and you see that with elected officials as well. Ilhan Omar, the degree to yes. which she has had to clarify to the nth degree any statement relating to 9-11 that she has ever made is something that you just wouldn't see with a white politician or possibly even a politician who doesn't wear a head covering yeah yeah no it, it's Ilhan Omar is such an interesting example I mean there was that was the some Republican state house uh had that poster they were distributing that like had Omar's face with, juxtaposed directly with the the burning twin towers um which is like I mean, yeah, totally wild. But at the same time, uh, her, in her own biography, um, like her own life, the she didn't, um, after 9-11 was when she committed kind of, as, the, as she talks about it, to wearing hijab. Um, that like, she kind of saw this sort of increase in Islamophobia and wanted to sort of like, show this visible pride for Islam. Um, and in doing so, like provide a kind of model of representation that it's, it's one of those complicated things where on the one hand, if you avoid wearing it, uh, like you yourself might sort of evade some level of, you know, maybe you can pass as, you know, non-Muslim sometimes and avoid the kind of hatred directed at you. And yet at the same time, you know, and especially since she's become more visible in public, like her presence sort of by wearing it provides this counter narrative, sort of visual narrative of like, here's 
Ilhan Omar, who like is a champion of Medicare for all and the Green New Deal and like, um, you know, has gotten a lot of like important, um, I don't know, has, you know, has put forward a pretty like compassionate radical uh, legislation in the house and, you know, um, and also does, you know, speak critically of the state of Israel and it does get her into trouble some somewhat fairly and some less than fairly. But, um, I think it's a, it's a burden that she takes on herself, but it, it sort of, I think makes space for others to kind of like, um, to wear the hijab or, you know, because there's now this like really visible figure who is a badass. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, the next elected official who wears a hijab is going to have it infinitely easier because she was right. willing to take that risk and, and be the first. And that is such an incredible task to take on for yourself. I cannot even imagine. There's so much to talk about. There's obviously been so much written about 9-11 and such, such, uh, from so many different angles. Um, I think it's useful to break it down just a little bit. And we've sort of done this, but there are different responses to 9-11 from different sectors. And a lot of times what's talked about in terms of 9-11, again, the narratives that come out of it is this moment of national unity. And again, there is a level in which that's true. This was a national trauma. And you hear that in Claudia Rankine writing about her own surprise, her speakers, I should say, surprised response to Rudy Giuliani. Like there was a level of national pain that was being felt. But having talked to a lot of people about 9-11, there are distinct differences in response. And that kind of plays out in the artistic response. Being in New York City was a fundamentally different experience of 9-11 or being near New York City than anywhere else. People there to this day have a different relationship to that attack than anywhere else. Something also that's important, of course, is that there were two other planes, you know, there was one that went into the Pentagon and one that went into a field in Pennsylvania. And there's, I think, like another slightly wider circle of like the Northeast. Um, you know, I know Sarita, who is the, the dedicatee to every episode except for one, um uh grew up outside philly and we've talked about our experiences on 9-11 and they were just wildly different she wasn't it wasn't the same as being in in the city itself but it was a lot more it's a lot more immediate yeah no i think that's that's absolutely true and and even within new york there are people who talk about it being a different experience where in manhattan or in the city you lived right because for some people their entire neighborhood they describe as looking like or feeling like a war zone for months. And if you were at the tip of Manhattan, you might not even know that that was still happening. So even within New York, I think Art Spiegelman also talks about that in his book about 9-11, how it feels like different worlds even within the island after a certain point. So there's sort of lower Manhattan, broader New York, and then the Northeast. That's kind of the, the center of 9-11, unsurprisingly, because that is where all of the planes went down, as you so rightly pointed out, it's not just New York. 
And then like the rest of the country had a very different relationship to it. It was big. Like we, Connor and I were both outside Chicago at the time. Like it was a massive event, but it didn't necessarily touch and alter your life in the same way. Like people in and around New York, if you saw the New York skyline, it was materially changed. It looked different. There was dust and clouds of ash in the air for days. Like you could see the impact. Um, and then beyond the United States, there was a very different reaction from the rest of the world because so much of the narrative in the U.S. was an offshoot of a certain kind of American exceptionalism because the United States has never been bordered by significant adversaries. So there was this narrative around like the world coming home to the U.S. and this new kind of terror visiting its shores. And not in a callous way, but a lot of response from the rest of the world was incredibly sympathetic, incredibly um, passionate and uh, responsive and receptive to the United States. But there was also, on some level, if you talk to individuals from other countries, there was a level of like, well, we've been here before. We have had experiences that look like this. And in fact, you can see with the bombings that took place in Madrid or in London after 9-11, there is not the same massive alteration to the society. Internationally, the response was different than in the United States. So this kind of geographical separation happens. And then as we discussed a little bit, there is a, you know, and there's complexities within these because they're such big categories, but by and large, the popular white response to 9-11 was different from the way that people of color, even within the United States, were experiencing it. And you see that in terms of the popular culture that's made about it. Like the world of hip hop and rap at the time, there were much more critical responses to 9-11 than in almost any other genre. And there's a reason for that, because it was a, a group of people who had seen the ways that the system had failed them, and they saw all of the same parts of that system that had failed them ramping up in response to 9-11. And in fact, that's what played out with the militarization of police forces. And But in terms of the international response, for a lot of people in the United States, it's just a way of thinking about 9-11 that will never meet you unless you actually talk to people from other countries or engage with media made about 9-11 from other countries because it is this wildly decentering act because however complex the narratives about 9-11 get, there is this core understanding of the event as so big that it changed everything. Even when complexity and historical context are brought to it, it's usually context about U.S. involvement with other countries. It's not necessarily context about global acts of terror over time. Um, and there is a movie that I recommend to everyone which is called 11901, and it is a bunch of short films from directors around the world, from different countries, and each film is 11 minutes, 9 seconds, and 1 frame long, and they all, in very different ways, are about 9-11. To this day, it has never found a U.S. distributor. It won awards at the Venice Film Festival, but it came out so soon after the attacks, and it contained messages none of which are necessarily wildly radical, but which were so outside of what the popular culture could contain at the time that it never made its way to the United States. It puts 9-11 and what happened to the United States in a global context. And 
there are quite a few pieces from it that I think about all the time. And the stuff that's in it is the stuff that often gets left out of the U.S. story. There's a whole piece that uh, the one from Mexico, which was actually by Alejandro Iñárritu, who has now won Oscars. Um, cool. Yeah. Um, but it's it's mostly a dark screen with like audio from the day. It's absolutely horrifying. Um, not my favorite from the group, but one that definitely stands out for being one of the most visceral. Um, but the one from Japan is fascinating because it is about a traumatized World War II veteran who thinks he's a snake. Whoa. It's, I, it's, it's really, I highly recommend it. It's got a lot going on in it, but what you see from other countries is this kind of global conversation that can incorporate and is big enough to hold an event like 9-11, whereas the national conversation in the United States often feels like it's not necessarily big enough to hold an event so complex. Yeah, no, that's really right. And I I have not seen those films and I need to. Um, they seem really so necessary. It, it reminds me of, I found this years ago and I, I just love I love them, um, but there, there's a form, a poetry form, um, called um, the called the Landai, I think is how you say it, um, and it's like a very short, um, originally like oral form of poetry um, from like around Afghanistan, um, and it's interesting because it's primarily. Um, written and sort of shared uh, by women and among women. Um, and it has this kind of, sometimes it's sung, um, but it, it has this, um, you know, sort of like often subversive quality or, or there's, there's this situation with the form and, and the fact that it's a poem or singing that allows sort of um, and has allowed women for a lot, like I think thousands of years, it's very, very ancient um, to kind of like express certain things that in sort of, uh, you know, accepted society would, would be taboo. Um, but there was this journalist um, who kind of translated uh, them from, I think, Pashto, um, is the was the language um and they're they're very short they're like haiku almost um and they've and um you know so here's one that's that's not sort of like related to anything that we're talking about but just one that i that i like a lot um i call your stone one day you'll look and find i'm gone um and there's a lot of like love poems obviously um and kind of interesting sort of things like that um and you know then it, it's also kind of like evolved on facebook and social media and kind of is shared that way and it's it's really fascinating but there's also this sort of current of you know because like afghanistan has been occupied um you know <laughs> The U.S. war in Afghanistan is in, in, still going on, um, despite this 
sort of hobbling uh, peace talks. Um, since 2001, I mean, so the U.S. declared war in Afghanistan in October of 2001, so basically a month after 9-11, um, which is, and it's still happening. Um, and the authorization for the use of military force, or AUMF, under which all of those were authorized, was signed just days after 9-11. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so there's this one that I love that's called, that goes... Um, Oh, darling, you're American in my eyes. You are guilty. I apologize. Um, Ooh, I like that. Which is kind of interesting. And it's, you know, it sort of speaks to, you know, there's just a, a ubiquity in certain places of U.S. forces. Um, and oftentimes, I think different forces get conflated into American forces. Um, but there you kind of get this like mixture of a little bit of the love, like f flirty tone um, mixed with responses to uh, U.S. imperialism, which I, I find uh, a bit funny. Um, there are some that are more intense and I, I guess like I, I find them interesting and, you know, they're not like representative of the entire genre or of, you know, the views of all people. But, um, but I think, you know, in terms of like decentering kind of the U S they, they kind of make a, an important point. Um, you know, there's one that goes, my Nabi was shot down by a drone. May God destroy your sons, America. You murdered my own. Um, which has a, obviously a violent, um, sort of impulse, but, you know, it comes from the perspective of like having, you know, it was written by, um, a mother whose, whose kids were killed in a drone strike. Um, and this is like the most privileged way of accessing this, but in the after the George Floyd was murdered um, and sort of in the uprisings. And then when the guard came in, there was a drone above our house that was like a predator drone and there were soldiers everywhere. And I can just, it was nothing compared to having them around all the time, just to grow up with drones constantly overhead and having them fire hellfire missiles, you know, just like, like at a, a semi-regular occurrence. Um, but I think one thing that at least has felt important for me to hold is like, and that I've tried to, with my one sort of minor experience with being in a militarized zone is like, it feels terrible and like you're constantly being surveilled and under threat and like also the impersonality of it but the violence that it does and I think like it's just yeah I, I just think it's 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 been important for me as like trying to be a semi-decent American citizen or something to be like, this is actually, we're doing this, you know, and like my, 
money is, you know, my little, my tax dollars are funding these little predator drones. And um, I don't know when I, when I read these poems, it, it kind of like, it opens me up to, there's such a dearth of representation of kind of that experience from the U S like, media and art, I think most of the time. Um, like a lot of times in the kind of the homeland slash CIA thriller type genre. Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan, yep. You'll have like a character whose like family was maybe killed by US drones or missiles or some kind of attack, but they're always framed as a counter narrative at best basically which is like either they're the bad guy and you just like feel somewhat bad for them never you you just you don't see it where they are the protagonist or they're the central part of the story um you know and like um it's and it's so rare like uh malala yusufzai is like such a rare example um, and even she has been kind of, I don't know, like the Western media has wanted to talk about her in a certain way as like a champion of kind of just like, you know, education and women's liberation in that way. Um, but at the same time, when she met with Obama, she was like, maybe don't do the drone strikes so much because they're fueling <laughs> terrorism and violence and they're not accomplishing good things. Um, and, but it's like, she's like the only <laughs> person who's like been accepted by, you know, or one of the very few people who've sort of been quote unquote accepted by the, the Western kind of discursive, whatever, who, can make such a claim like from their own sort of lived experience, which I think is kind of interesting, but these, yeah. Anyway, these poems are just really, they're, they're often like, yeah, they're just like, I don't know. It's, it's just really interesting. One that I, that I thought was also powerful is the last one that I'll share is um, come to Guantanamo, follow the clang of my chains. Um, which I thought was powerful, which I think, and, and apparently we'll, we'll um, link to this, but um, there's, there's a great kind of piece um, about this, this form that has like sort of contextualizing, you know, prose about it. But um, basically there was this family who like their son and someone else in their family like went missing and they didn't, they didn't know where they were. They hadn't heard from them in six months. Um, and they actually just assumed that they were in Guantanamo Bay, that somehow that the U S troops had taken them and they were in Guantanamo. And so this, um, her name is Haram Bibi. Um, started singing these Lundais, and one of them was come to Guantanamo, follow the clang of my chains. Eventually, they learned that they were in Afghanistan being held by U.S. troops at an airfield. Um, 
so there you go. Um, and that's such an important part of the 9-11 story because that is how it reverberates out through time. It is through what ended up becoming basically just accepted aspects of what was American. Uh, and what those included were all sorts of extrajudicial actions justified under the rhetoric of fighting terrorism. Hi everybody, this is Jack again, just quickly jumping in to again say thank you so much for listening, and also that this is the second part in what is a three-part series about poetry and 9-11 and the aftermath of 9-11, including the wars created in its aftermath, and in our next episode we're especially going to be looking at the ways that 9-11 and its influence are still felt today and how poetry has continued to be a really valuable way for artists to look at the cultural impact and political impact of 9-11 and to continue raising important questions about it even as it moves farther and farther from the present. So we hope you'll join us again for that episode and thank you so much for listening to this one. Mm-hmm.